It has been a few weeks since I cried, so you almost got me. <laughs> One year anniversary, you just about got me. You just about got me. Man, and you know what it was? It was that the gulf that you spanned. The gulf that you spanned. Your God moved heaven and earth to come get you. And if that doesn't just blow you away, check your spiritual pulse, please. The mercy and grace of God. And when and remember this series, Isaiah 40 to 45, when you know who He is, you see who you are, and you just get obliterated in the presence of such grace. That old sinner, that old son or daughter of Adam just melts away and you're a whole new person, a new creature, as Paul says, in Christ. And that was, I love poetry, but that wasn't poetry when Paul said that. You really do get to be new, brand new, because of what he did for you on that tree. Staggering. Well, as we continue in Isaiah 40 to 55 in our series, we are up to Isaiah 45. So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Isaiah 45 for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We're going to read together verses 9 to 12. Verses 9 to 12. So please stand with me as we read together Holy Scripture. Isaiah 45, I'm going to read verses 9 to 12. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask Him to bless our time in this word. Father, we ask that You would send Your Holy Spirit from heaven to do what only He can do, to melt hearts of stone and create hearts of flesh in us, to raise the dead in us, to give us a glimpse of who You are, we ask that you would bless the reading of your powerful, mighty, inspired word. And bless now especially the preaching of that word. And let it be for us the voice of our God to us. Not the voice of me. I just want to be the mouthpiece. And I want to get out of the way. Hide me today. And you stand forth, O God, from your word. And let us meet with you. And may we not ever be the same. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You can be seated. John MacArthur tells the story of of a small group of Christians, maybe eight people, we'll say, who came to his church out in California, and they made their way up to him after the service, and they said, Pastor John, we are from such and such church. They said, it is a very, very charismatic church, and uh, we are leaving that church, and we want to come join this church. And he said, well... Okay, well, explain yourselves. Why do you want to leave? There's like eight of you. You're all leaving together. What, what's going on? And they said, and, it's, and, he, and MacArthur said, I'll never forget what they said to me. They said, we just got tired of living under the sovereignty of Satan. He said, we are in a tradition and in a church, and this isn't a condemnation of every charismatic. Don't hear me wrong. This is just these people talking about their particular local church. But they said, we are part of a church, and every day we're supposed to go to every room and rebuke the devil and cast out the devil and pray a hedge of protection. And just we're just constantly supposed to be on the lookout for the devil. He's just, he's in our houses, he's in our lives, he's in our families, and we just have to always be rebuking him and... Casting him out of every room. And, and they said, then we just got tired of living like that. Living under the sovereignty of Satan. And we want to come hear you tell us about a big God. Who's mightier than our enemy. That's powerful. Um, when uh, this church me and Sarah grew up in back home. Uh, there, sometimes the people say things in church and you think, should I say something in church? Should I start that fight right here in the middle of worship? Do I dare? Uh, and there was one of these moments. I did not. I'm not going to stir up that hornet's nest. Not this morning. Nope. That's not my personality type. Uh, but someone stood up and shared a testimony. And, or well, not testimony. They stood up and asked for prayer. And they said, look, we've been going through a really, really rough time. So-and-so was in a car accident. And, and we just, we don't understand what God is teaching us. What is God doing right now? And why did he bring these things into our lives? And what's going on? And it just, it, it hurts. It doesn't make sense. And what do we do? This is very relatable stuff. This is real life. This is very relatable stuff. We've all been there. And someone, I, have, I can't remember who it was, but someone stood up after she got through asking for prayer and just said, you know, preacher, can I say something? Yeah, go ahead. And he just, I just want to tell you, ma'am, I just want to say that God had nothing to do with what you're going through. He was not there for that car accident. He did not want any of this to happen to you. It, this is 100% out of, outside of his will. This, you, this is not God. He's not teaching you anything. He just wasn't there. This is only the devil trying to get you. And you need to resist the devil and he'll flee. Now... If I was ever going to interrupt worship to start a theological debate. <laughs> this was the time to do it. I did not. And I let him go on in his blissful ignorance. <laughs> but on a serious note. 
he had the best intentions in the world. He, he, he stood up and he, it, that was supposed to be comforting for this woman. Right? She was try, he was trying to say, look, God didn't do this to you. This is just the devil. God would never, ever want anything bad to ever happen in your life. And as comforting as that was supposed to be, it's actually the worst thing he could have ever said to her about her suffering. And it's the worst thing that these, these eight people who came to John MacArthur's church one day could have heard and probably did hear. Because what you're actually saying is, when you say a thing like that, is that God couldn't stop the devil from making you suffer. It's 100% God's will that suffering not happen to you. And it's 100% the devil's will that suffering does happen to you. And then you end up suffering. So who won? His idea about God's relation to the things that happen in the world. And his idea about the things that happen in your life. Couldn't be further from the truth. Isaiah 45 gives us one of the most exalted descriptions of the absolute sovereignty of God anywhere in the Bible. Isaiah portrays God as a master potter with absolute rights and absolute power and absolute authority over the clay of creation. Able to form and fashion the very fabric of space and time. However he sees fit. Able to shape the exact course of history according to his own will. Able to mold his human creatures either into vessels of honor or vessels of dishonor. According to his good pleasure. Isaiah 45 reveals the potter's freedom. A divine freedom that cannot be limited and cannot be constrained by anything other than his own good pleasure. Psalm 115 and elsewhere in the Bible. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And that doesn't mean sometimes. It means he always does exactly what he pleases. You know, we often get so focused on human free will and our, what our free will is capable of. People who aren't Reformed and who aren't Calvinistic in the kind of Presbyterian tradition that we are in, they just get obsessed with the freedom of almighty sinner man and what can man do and what is God allowed to do. With our freedom. But we never just pause and think about God's free will. You know, if anybody's got real freedom, it's God. Why don't we care about God's freedom? The potter's freedom. If we are clay and he is the potter, he has the freedom to do what he wants with his creation. His freedom is supreme over the freedom of all creatures. It doesn't mean that he's free and you're not. It just means that he's more free than you could ever imagine being. 
as we study the scriptures this morning in Isaiah 45, I want to show you from the text of God, from the text, not from Wesley, not from seminary, not because I'm Presbyterian, from the text of God's inspired and infallible word, four aspects of God's sovereign freedom. And if it's in the word, then we have to do business with God. Our question is, what does the scriptures teach? I want us to see four aspects from Isaiah 45 of God's sovereign freedom, the potter's freedom. And then we'll conclude at the end by considering why the potter's freedom is such good news for you. If you belong to him. So let's get started. You have your sermon notes insert. It has the four aspects on it. There is the freedom of the potter's dominion. There is the freedom of the potter's decree. The freedom of his providence. And finally, the freedom of his grace. The first is the freedom of the potter's dominion. What is the dominion of God? The dominion of God is the realm where He rules. The realm where God rules as King. Dominion is a way of referring to the exclusivity of God's throne. He alone is God. He alone rules and reigns over all things. There are no rivals to His majesty. There are no rival gods seated upon their thrones with their own dominions, challenging His kingship like some sort of dualistic battle in the heavens, the evil, and they have their dominion and their throne, and God has His dominion and His throne, and they're always fighting, and sometimes evil wins, and sometimes God wins, and you never can tell. Could go either way. There's nothing like that going on. No one's challenging his kingship. No one's threatening to overpower him. God has absolute dominion, absolute rule over all things. Let's look at the text. Look at verse 5. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Besides me, there is no God. In verse 6, he says, From the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, Jehovah God, and there is no other. This is a way of him saying, as we've been seeing throughout this series, these idols are not gods. They are nothing. They are pretenders. They are parodies of the true God. I alone am God. I have no rivals. Skip ahead to verse 16. Speaking now of those who make idols, he says, All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. 
God is the only God, and idols are nothing. This is why God, the only living, the only true God, is described as a master potter in the text that I read for us at the beginning. All that is not God is but clay in His hands. There's God and there's everything else. That's the dividing line. And on one side you have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on the other side you've got everything else. And God made everything else. And it's clay in His hands to form, fashion, shape, and mold however He sees fit to do so. You see that in the passage that I read in verse 9. He says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. This language of forming is all over Isaiah 45. And and he intends it to be intentional here to this image of the potter who's got the clay and he's spinning it on his little wheel. He's making his pottery and he's forming it and he's shaping it. It's God. God is actively involved. He's not way off out there somewhere and creation's running on down here. But he's the potter. He's hands-on with his world. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Earthly little creatures. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. You can imagine a clay pot saying, Excuse me, potter, where are my handles? I think you've made a mistake. You've made a critical error. I'm supposed to have handles. This is supposed to be humorous. You've got these pots who are correcting the potter. Hello, I don't like being that color. I'd like to be a different shape. I need some handles. I don't want to be used for this. I'd like to... And he says, what pot talks back to the potter? Uh, What are you making right now? What are you doing? And the potter, you don't check in with me. I'm the potter. Shush. I get to make the decisions. (laughs) That's the image. Pots don't talk back to the potter. But all of us love to talk back to God. (laughs) Because we think we know better. We think, oh, I, I know what I need. I know what you should be doing. If I were you, I'd run my world this way. I have my idea about what my life should be and look like and what I should do and what should happen and what should work out and what shouldn't and and I should just be getting my way. And I'm not. What gives? Where are my handles? (laughs) That's us. We are arrogant little creatures of dust. Specks of earth who think we're so wise. We don't realize or we often forget that he is the potter and we are the clay and he gets to call the shots. He has absolute dominion. You see, God's dominion is absolute in its power and exhaustive in its extent. Let me read you this. Daniel 4, 34 to 35 says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. 
And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's the potter. And for the remainder of this sermon, we're going to see in more detail just how free this sovereign almighty potter is as he forms and fashions the clay of his creation according to the counsel of his will. So let's go to point two. This is the, we've seen the freedom of his dominion. The first thing the potter forms and fashions now is his sovereign decree. We've seen that he's free to do what he wants as the potter, but now what does he do? What does he form and fashion? First thing this potter forms and fashions from all eternity is his sovereign decree. A decree is a command or an order from the throne of God that something come to pass in the world. That's a decree. He makes a command or an order from all eternity, from his throne, that something in the world come to pass. We sang, what was it last week? We sang, I sing the mighty power of God, right? We sang that. And it has a line that says, Tempests, tempests, so like tornadoes, hurricanes, tempests blow by order of your throne. That's a decree. The order of his throne that says, this shall come to pass in the world. Westminster Confession, oh, excuse me, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of our authorities of faith here. Question 7 asks this, What are the decrees of God? Answer, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby... For his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Isaiah 45 shows us the potter's freedom to form and fashion his invincible decree, which is his sovereign purpose, a purpose that cannot be thwarted. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. We looked at verse 6 a second ago. Let's pick it up and now see it in connection with verse 7. He says that the people may know from the rising of the sun, so from the east and from the west, so the whole globe, from all the way in that direction where the sun rises to all the way in that direction where it sets, the whole compass, the whole world, from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 7. I form light. There's form. That's potter language. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So you see, from this end of the world to that, east to west, I'm the one forming the light, and I'm the one creating the darkness, 
Sunrise to sunset, I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the one who makes the light. I'm the one who makes the darkness. And in the same way, I'm the one who makes well-being, who makes all the good in the world. And I'm the one who ultimately is in charge of all the calamity that happens in the world as well. From the big picture stuff right down to that time you hit your thumb with a hammer or stubbed your toe or right down to the smallest detail of our lives, He is in control. God decrees all things both the bad and the good. So that man that I mentioned in the beginning who said, look, God had nothing to do with it. He wasn't even there for that car accident you were in. Isaiah 45 says, everything that happens in the world ultimately has to get his pass. I had a professor in seminary who described it as some, uh, something comes across his desk and it doesn't happen in his world unless he stamps it and approves it. Nothing comes into your life that he hasn't stamped and given his approval that it come to pass. It doesn't mean he's the one there doing it to you. Right? God decrees all things, but he doesn't do all things. He's ultimately in charge and in control. And things either happen because he does them or because he allows them. He either does them himself or he allows them. And that's the difference. That's the asymmetry in God's relationship to good and bad. The way he creates good is not the same as the way he creates the calamity and the tragedy and the evil. Because God is not the author of sin. Sin's our idea, not his. But we can't sin unless he allows it to happen. And he only allows it to happen if he has a very good, a very wise, and a very holy reason for doing so. These are deep waters. But Isaiah 45, 7 is in our Bibles, like it or not. I am the one who makes well-being and creates calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The reality is, God's decrees are hidden from us. We, we're not privy to this knowledge. We don't know the secret counsels of God from all eternity, what He has purposed to bring about in His world. We have no idea beforehand what's happening. God's decrees are hidden from us. We do not know, nor do we have access to God's secret will ahead of time. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, one of Martin Luther's favorite verses. Truly, you are a God who hides Himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. You are a God who hides Himself. That means we only have access to God's revealed will. And always remember that God has these two aspects to His will. He has His secret will, where He's decreed all that comes to pass and foreordained everything, good, bad, and otherwise, from beginning to end. And then we have His revealed will, what He's told us in the Scriptures. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things, they belong to Him. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So that we may do all the words of this law. God gives us His revealed will in the Scriptures. And that's our authority and that's what we're to follow. And this is what we have access to. We know that God has a secret will. We know that He makes these decrees. But we don't have access to know what they are in advance. Our job is to be laser focused on what He has revealed. And to be obedient to all that He has said. To believe and to do. And we leave the business of the potter to Him. And we don't tell Him how He should form the clay down here. He gets to make that decision. And that's good news for us because we're not living under the sovereignty of Satan. If, this, if the devil had this, had this power, but he doesn't. Luther, Martin Luther used to say, the devil is the God's devil. He's a puppet on God's left hand. That's the way he used to say it. He gives the devil just enough leash to do a little bit here and there. But at any moment, God restrains and constrains. This is why the devil had to ask God permission to harm Job. And he couldn't do a thing to Job until God said, You may do this, you may not do this. This far and no farther. The devil is on a leash. He's not out there running wild. Oh, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. But he is not off his leash. He can go only as far as God and his infinite wisdom allows him to go. God's decree is all-encompassing. It includes absolutely everything that ever is or ever does come to pass in all of history and all of creation. Verses twenty. 3 and 24. He says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. We'll just stop there, verse 23. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word, a decree that shall not return, that shall not fail. To come to pass. And notice what it says. It goes out in righteousness. All of God's decrees, no matter what they are, are righteous and good. They are righteous and they are good. God decrees the very end of time itself when every knee shall bow. And Paul says the one that they bow to is Christ at the second coming. Because in Philippians 2, Paul quotes. Verse 23, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. He quotes that as being fulfilled in Jesus, which tells you that Jesus is the God of Isaiah 45. And that's why this is not scary, terrifying, bad news. Because the one who is the potter is the one who took the nails for you. And that's how you know you can trust him. If he's willing to come and take the nails and the spear and shed his blood and pour out his life unto death for you, you can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your life. 
Isaiah 46, in the next chapter, verse 10 says that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. All my purpose I shall accomplish. God's decree is free. He does whatever He pleases. That's the first aspect of the potter's freedom. Now, number two, the freedom of his providence. The next thing this potter forms and fashions, first it's his decree, and the second thing is his providence. Now, if the decree of God is his sovereign and invincible purpose, by which he foreordains all that comes to pass then the providence of God is His sovereign, inscrutable plan, whereby He works out His decree and accomplishes His purpose. The decree is His purpose, and providence is His plan for accomplishing that purpose. That's the distinction. Westminster Shorter Catechism. We just looked at question 7. What are the decrees of God? Question 8 asks this. How does God execute His decrees? Answer. God executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. Now we know what creation is. Providence is what God does in the world to make sure His decree comes to pass. And we see in Isaiah 45 the potter's freedom to form and fashion his inscrutable providence, which is, a, which is his sovereign plan, a plan that cannot fail. Now God illustrates the freedom of his providence with King Cyrus, the ruler of Persia. He does this in verses 1 through 6 and in verse 13. So let's look here briefly at verse 1. Isaiah 45, 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, Cyrus, king of Persia, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. To subdue nations before him. Verse 4, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you Cyrus by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Though you don't know me. I know who you are, and I have raised you up, he says. I have raised you up. Verse 13, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city, Jerusalem, and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So here we have this emperor, this king, on his throne, ruling the largest and mightiest empire known to man at the time, the Persian Empire, stretching from the borders of India all the way to the gates of Greece, down into Egypt, all throughout the Middle East. It's massive. And Cyrus sits on the throne of this empire, wielding such glory and power and riches and armies you couldn't believe. And God says, I've taken you by the hand like a little boy and I'm leading you, meaning your armies, to all the little nations I want you to do my bidding in. God is directing this king. Proverbs says the heart of the king is like a channel of water in his hands and he just directs that water wherever he wants. 
God turns the hearts of kings, dictators, tyrants, emperors, prime ministers, presidents. It doesn't matter. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. God is able to, it says he stirred up Cyrus. What for? So that Cyrus would set his people free, not from Egypt, but from Persia, and let them come back to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That's what God wants to happen. So how does God get his people out of Persia and back to Jerusalem? Answer, he tells Cyrus, not in Cyrus's ears, but on the inside, he puts the thoughts in his head and he stirs him up and he says, you know what, I think I'm going to let the Jews go free. Oh, really, king? Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, really. But I think it's a good idea. Let's do it. Okay. And he writes the letter and he sends like, you know, he gets Ezra and Nehemiah and he says, you guys want to go home? Really? Yeah. Okay. You guys want to rebuild your temple? Seriously? Yeah, come on. Cyrus, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. It just feels... Right? He says, you don't know me. You don't know me. You don't worship me. But I'm still God. I'm greater than your little gods. And you don't think it's true. You don't even realize what's going on. But buddy, I am in charge. And I want my people to go home. So, I'm just going to weave in and out of your psychology and your heart and I'm just going to make it look like a good decision. And then you're going to do it. This is his providence. God's plan for how he's going to accomplish his purpose. My purpose here is to bring the Jews home, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, restore my people in fulfillment of my promises to them. How does God keep his promises? He raises up a pagan king. And what that pagan king thinks is his, his plans, his decisions, his thoughts, his motivations, they are his, but behind the scenes is Almighty God's providence orchestrating everything exactly as he decides it's going to go. God's free will is sovereign over the free will of Cyrus. And Cyrus was the nearest thing to a god on earth that you could imagine at the time. Because he's the emperor. His word is law. No one can tell him anything. He's as free as, as a human being can get. And yet God is sovereign still over that. He's that much more free. And God shows his freedom to direct the course of history. Because this changes history <laughs> to get the Jews out of Persia and get them back to their homeland so that eventually Jesus can be born in Bethlehem. He changes the course of history. He's free over the choices of his free creatures. He is free over the destinies of whole nations. The potter's freedom shapes and molds the freedom of his creatures in order to fulfill his decree. The first thing the potter forms and fashions is his decree from all eternity. The second thing he forms and fashions is his providence, his plan of how he's going to accomplish that decree in history. And now, the third thing. Final point. The third thing he is sovereign over as the potter. 
It's the freedom of his grace. The freedom of his grace. At the heart of God's decree, at the heart of his purpose, at the apex of his providential plan, is the eternal salvation of his chosen people to the praise of the glory of his grace. The grace of God, like His decree and like His providence, is absolutely free. Grace cannot be demanded. And just let that, just marinate in that. If grace is really grace, undeserved, non-entitled, unmerited in fact I deserve the opposite if grace is really grace I don't get to be mad at God when I don't get it it cannot be demanded as the pot I don't get to say to the potter that's not fair Grace is not owed to anyone. And if grace is to remain grace, it has to be utterly free. The potter must remain completely free in the dispensation of his saving grace. Otherwise, we're not talking about grace anymore. We're talking about fairness or justice or something else, but it ain't grace. If grace can be demanded, then God owes it to you based on something you did, something you deserve. Isaiah 45 shows us the potter's freedom to form and fashion his saving grace as a special gift for his chosen people. So let's see this. Look in verse 4. We're just going to connect the dots. Let's connect some dots. Verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob... And Israel, my chosen. Israel, my chosen, my elect. All right, dot number one. Second dot, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him. I chose my people and I form. Again, like the potter. I chose them and I form them. I bring them into being. I form a people for myself. Chosen and formed. First two dots. Verse 17. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Israel is chosen, formed, saved with everlasting salvation. Last dot, 25, end of the chapter. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. I chose my people I bring them into being, I form, I shape, I fashion them. I save them with an everlasting salvation. I justify them. This is good gospel stuff here. Justify them 
And we know He does that in Christ. And they shall glory in me forever. So that's beginning to end. From chosen to glory. The whole thing and it's all up to God. God chooses His elect. He didn't choose the Persians. God treated the Jews in Egypt different than He treated the Egyptians. God chooses His elect those whom He has predestined to save for eternity in His decree. He forms them into His special people in His providence. He justifies them by faith so that they might glorify Him forever. And how? How does God bring about the salvation of His chosen people? He showers them with His sovereign grace. Let's look at verse 8. He showers them with His sovereign grace. Verse 8. It says, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down in righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. He loved this verse too. And he loved the analogy that this verse uh, this verse includes. The earth cannot make the heavens rain. The ground cannot climb up to the clouds and bring down the water. The earth has no say, no control on when or where the rains will come. God is the one in the same way God is the one who sends the rains upon the earth whenever He wants. God is the one who sends the rain of His grace to water the hard ground of us sinners. And He is the one who causes us to be good soil in which that word of life takes root and sprouts and bears fruit. He is the one who causes salvation and righteousness to spring up. As Isaiah says at the end of verse 8, I, the Lord, have created it. God's grace is sovereign. And He remains free to rain down His grace upon whomever He pleases. Now, I have to pause for a second and answer an objection. Because you start saying these things, and it's like, it doesn't matter for Presbyterians. Somebody's like... I don't like that. <laughs> that, doesn't sound, that doesn't sound right to me. Some might object, right? That if God's grace is free and sovereign like this, and if He gives it to whomever He wants without consulting us, how dare He? Then what's the point? What's the point in preaching the gospel? What's the point in sharing your faith? What's the point in evangelizing? What's the point? It's up to God and He's going to save them and we're not important and... You know, good night, let us go home. We're ready for lunch. Well, we're ready for ice cream, right, Kathy? What's the point? Okay, fair enough. But what I want to say to that objection is, although it seems to make sense, be careful. Be careful, because now you're trying to be wiser than the Scriptures. Look at verse 22. 
If God's so sovereign, then we can't preach the gospel. Verse 22. And this is in the same chapter as all this other stuff we've been talking about, right? We have, we're not in a different book. We're not in a different chapter. We're barely on the next page in my Bible. Verse 22, God says, Turn to me and be saved. Who? Just the elect? Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth... For I am God and there is no other. We cannot be wiser than the Scriptures. We're not wiser than God. This is the free offer of the gospel to the ends of the earth. In the same chapter where we hear about the sovereignty of God's decree and providence and grace and dominion, we have a gospel invitation. Turn to me and be saved. Everybody, all the ends of the earth. Well, that can't possibly be sincere. Like, he can't mean that. If it's, if it's sovereign grace, then he can't mean all the ends of the earth. It doesn't make sense. Verse 19. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. There is a free offer of the gospel to all the ends of the earth. And it is well meant and it is sincere. The problem is we don't know how to present the gospel. Because we think the gospel is God loved you so much that Jesus died for you. And if you'll just, he has a great plan for your life. And if you'll just. The gospel is. God gave His Son as the perfect Redeemer to save everyone on this planet who turns to Him. And you have to add that part at the end. God gave Christ as the perfect Savior of sinners who turn to Him. He did not send Jesus to save all the people who don't believe. And we know that because those people don't end up getting saved. That's actually what John 3.16 says. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes... Ooh, so that whosoever believes may have eternal life. God sent Jesus to save believers, not unbelievers. And the gospel is, if you become a believer, He'll be your perfect Savior. And if you don't, He won't be. Not, Jesus died to save you. you know, we have to focus on what the gospel offer really is. Turn to me and be saved. I have made a perfect sacrifice for everyone in the world and throughout all history who believes. And the invitation is to believe. Come be a believer and you're included. If you don't believe, then it's not for you. It's just for believers. We can't be wiser than Scripture. We don't know who those elect are, just like we don't know what God's decree is beforehand. We don't know who the elect are, so we may and we must share the gospel with everybody, without distinction and without exception, so that all God's elect will hear it and turn from their sin and come to Christ and be saved. So let me conclude, as I promised, with briefly, why is this good news for you? We've seen the potter's freedom in all its magnificent glory today. 
We've seen the freedom of His dominion, the freedom of His decree, His providence, and especially the freedom of His grace. It cannot be demanded. Grace is not grace unless unconditional election is true. Why is this good news for you, Christian? Why is it good news that the potter is free in his decree and providence, his dominion and grace? Why is it good news for you, Christian? It's good news because it means that nothing happens in your life or in your world that is outside of God's control. All the good that you enjoy in life is a pure, undeserved blessing from His generous hand. And all the bad that you suffer in life is filled with meaning, divine meaning, eternal significance, real, genuine purpose assigned by God. It's not just this random thing that God slipped up and lost control of for a second and now he's got to try his best to bring good out of evil, but it would have been great if I could have stopped it. You don't want to believe in a God like that because that's a God who sometimes fumbles, sometimes has to punt, sometimes he's doing the best he can. That's not God doing the best he can like us. Everything in your life, the good and the bad, is being overruled and overseen by the wisdom and power of God's good and glorious providence. Nothing happens outside the will and plan of God, and He has designed and assigned everything in your life to work together for your ultimate good and His ultimate glory. And that's really good news. And because this God is Christ, your bleeding Savior, you know that it's a plan that's full of love and full of wonder, full of wisdom and full of His mercy. It doesn't mean real life doesn't absolutely stink sometimes. And that tragedy is absolutely real and it cuts deep. None of that's denied by this. It's not like, well, if God's sovereign, it doesn't really hurt, so get over it. No, 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 no. Two things can be true at once. God is sovereign in the midst of the pain, and He knows the pain because He suffered it too for you. In the midst of all your blessings, always remember to give praise and thanks to God with gratitude from the depths of your heart. In the midst of all your suffering, always remember to accept God's will with humility and reverence, honoring the potter's freedom, acknowledging that I'm just the pot, and trusting in His sovereign purpose and grace, which He is working out every day for your greater holiness in this life and your greatest happiness in the life to come. And if you doubt, Christian, look to the cross. God sacrificed His only Son, who shed His blood for your soul. Jesus paid the full price. He paid it all for you. And that is the guarantee. That even if God's sovereign purpose, and even if His saving plan leads you through the darkest valley, on the other side is eternal joy. 
that lasts forever. In the words of that great hymn, God moves in a mysterious way by William Cooper. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray. Oh, merciful Father, we just, oh, we just pause, Lord, to just give you such tremendous thanks and, and to just take a moment to be in awe of you, of your greatness and power, but also to be so absolutely humbled by who you are upon your throne and to be overwhelmed by your extraordinary grace to us. We deserve absolutely nothing but hell. And you have promised us heaven and you've given us Christ and everything we need in our Savior. What a staggering gospel this is. What a glorious God you are. Help us to see you for who you are. And let that change how we experience our daily lives and how we think about ourselves and our world so that we can put all our confidence in you. And that in the midst of absolutely overwhelming stress, pain, tragedy, loss, suffering, confusion, darkness, clouds, in the midst of even the valley of the shadow of death, May we, may we be reminded by things like Isaiah 45 of who you are on your throne and let us see those nail-scarred hands taking hold of ours and leading us through this tragic life, even in the midst of our suffering, knowing that he suffered once for us, the just in place of the unjust, so that he could bring us to you. And oh, set our eyes and our hearts and our hopes upon that glorious inheritance that is to come trusting in our Savior who paid the full price for our soul, who will not leave us, will not abandon us, will not forsake us, but has filled our suffering with meaning and purpose and is working it all out for our ultimate good and for your ultimate glory. And may we experience some of that now so that we can give you the praise even in the midst of the deepest valley. Help us, Lord. Apply this word to our hearts and souls today and the rest of this week as we meditate upon who you really are on your throne. And may we never lose sight of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.